thing we have to fear is fear itself, fear itself. From the Center for History and New Media at George Mason University, this is Digital Campus, a bi-weekly discussion of how digital media and technology are affecting learning, teaching, and scholarship at colleges, universities, libraries, and museums. This is Digital Campus, episode 114, recorded May 8th, 2015. Welcome to Digital Campus. This is episode 115, and this is Stephen Robertson. As usual, since I seem to be the least mobile member of the Digital Campus crew, I am still in my office at the Roy Rosenzweig Centre for History and New Media here at George Mason University. Um, We've been delayed slightly in putting this podcast together, partly by the high-profile activities of our... one of our members, Dan Cohen. Dan, what have you been up to that kept you away from Digital Campus Podcast? Uh, well, I was I had a little visit with um, one of the one of the podcast's biggest fans, President Barack Obama, uh, longtime listener, first time caller, uh, but <laughs> did did get uh, a nice chance uh, at our previously scheduled time for this podcast to go to the West Wing and. Uh, Actually, did meet with the president um, and uh, joined him with some other organizations, other nonprofits, to announce a new program to help get ebooks to poor kids, um, kids in low ki- low income areas, and um, so that was really exciting. I've, I'm of course joking about him listening to the podcast. Maybe he does, um, and, and it would be cool if he did. But um, I do know that he uh, is a big supporter of libraries, and um, I think also of some of the things we've discussed on this podcast, um, certainly um, the vibe I got was was one in favor of open access and at least maximizing access to electronic works of culture. So in that way, um, he's very much in the spirit of the podcast. But um, uh, for those who haven't heard, we uh, launched something with New York Public Library, which I think everyone has heard of NYPL, and but another organization called first book that we probably haven't talked a lot about on this podcast but uh, and was a little bit new to me when this planning process began some months ago. Um, but first book actually helps to get um, physical books into the hands of kids across the United States. Um, and, um, you know, they were sort of looking to go digital and obviously Digital Public Library of America is already digital and New York Public has um, some great capacity as well. So it's a, a nice combination and um, we launched a program under the kind of banner of Connect Ed, which I think is a program we've probably discussed on the podcast before, but it is President Obama's attempt to um, essentially get corporations and others to donate equipment and services and software um, for education to um, you know help level the, the playing field a little bit and to make sure that some of the things we discuss on this podcast, um, you know, are available to all. And uh, so this program will be getting a quarter of a billion dollars in donations of eBooks from um, actually most of the big publishers, as well as some um, uh, kids' book publishers, uh, as well, um, and also Cricket Magazine, which I was I'm, was a huge fan of when I was a kid. I'm sure everyone else on this podcast probably. Read a Cricket magazine. Those will also be donated as part of this, and uh, we'll be working with First Book and New York Public to put out an app that will host these things. There'll be a big section of that, which will be um, DPLA content that's available to all kids, and then there will be um, a kind of verified section um, that will be uh, live for again kids at Title One schools and other places where um, First Book uh, operates, uh, who will get access to additional. Um, in copyright content. So it's an exciting new program. It's um, some months away from launching, but I'm, I'm sure I'll talk about it more on the podcast as we get to that uh, launch date. All right. So exciting news and exciting um, company. Um, we're also joined by other regulars who perhaps have not met 
such auspicious people in recent times. Tom Seinfeld, have you met anybody important since the last podcast? Uh, anybody important? I don't want to offend anybody. Yeah, so, uh, exactly. I've met lots question. of I've met lots of important people <laughs> since the last podcast. Um, <laughs> no, no one, no, perhaps no one as well known as President Obama, but lots. Uh, of wait, Tom, you saw me uh, the same <laughs> yeah. that I saw President Obama. So there's a commutative principle here. <laughs> right, that's it. That's right. It's the six degrees of separation kicking in. So, and you're still up in Connecticut, Tom? Yeah, I'm in Connecticut. I'm, uh, today I'm in my home office. So, beautiful day up here. And we also have with us the, another podcast regular, Mills Kelly. Are you in your home office on this Friday afternoon? I'm in my office in beautiful, dying Robinson Hall here on the campus of George Mason. Beautiful being in scare quotes, dying being a statement of fact. Is, is it being replaced or renovated? Have, oh, I, yes. have I missed some we're gonna news? Scrape, we're going to scrape this puppy off. Oh, really? Uh, it was good to of us. course, it's going to be about six or seven years before <laughs> that happens. But, but the good news is the state of Virginia has given us the money to plan the future demolition oh. rebuild. So that means Ooh, we can hire an full, architect. Full demolition, not just um, what they were I think discussing when I was there, which was a maybe a little bit of an add-on section. Oh, they're taking the. They're first. They're going to tear down Robinson A, and everybody in Robinson A is going to move into Robinson B with us. We're going to all like be like little little sardines in a big moldy old can, and then that, and then they're going to rebuild Robinson A as a freestanding Robinson, and then they're going to move us over there, and then they're going to tear down Robinson B and turn it into green space. Wow, that sounds really nice. So I'm thinking, you know, so I'm 55, I plan to retire when I'm 65, and my, my hope is that I actually get to move into the new building before I retire. And that might be optimistic, we never know. <laughs> but our, our last regular has, in fact, moved into new buildings and yeah. new terrain. Um, Amanda French, in your new job. Yes, indeed. Um, I am here in beautiful Blacksburg, Virginia. Uh, in my new position as Director of Research and Informatics at the Virginia Tech Libraries. Um, so just down the road from George Mason University. Um, and it's interesting you're talking about that, Mills. We have um, a really well-known um, sort of, we have a, we're really focused on spaces here. Um, so Brian Matthews, who writes a column for the Chronicle about library learning spaces, I think is at least as interested in learning spaces as you are. Uh, particularly, of course, in the library, but not exclusively there. And so uh, I've taught in that building <laughs> in Robinson when I was at George Mason. It's, it's pretty much a nightmare. It's really true, uh, particularly if you want to teach with technology. But um, yeah, so in my, in my new position, I have a number of uh, different responsibilities which are exposing me to all kinds of you know, fascinating new uh, areas. Um, I'm in charge of the institutional repository here. Uh, Virginia Tech Works, so um, aligns really well with my interest in making scholarly work uh, openly available, you know, even including undergraduate scholarly work as well as graduate uh, theses and dissertations and other kinds of work and faculty publications and gray literature and all that, so that's really fascinating. I am uh, in charge of uh, digital humanities, uh, not really exactly on the whole campus, but in charge of, you know, at the library, making sure uh, that we develop services and support various digital humanities projects, um, which is exciting. And, of course, right in my wheelhouse. Um, and then, you know, just some other sort of uh, internal things. Um, we've got a really interesting program here where we're, um, um, we bas we're basically, we've, we've hired some um, uh, PhDs in computer science to serve as, liaisons to particular departments and colleges uh, and so it's, it's sort of like you know you have a reference librarian who liaises with particular departments um, well these are programmers who liaise with particular really colleges because we've only got two of them so it's not really at the department level but it's basically to provide um, programming support for really advanced research projects and this has been a really really popular program um, so we've got one um, uh, data, and, data and informatics consultant who is working with um, a project in the you know in the engineering college where they have a building that's laden with sensors and of course is producing massive massive amounts of data and he's helping them write an application to collect and analyze and then preserve all that data 
Um, we're hiring another CLEAR fellow. I began my career um, as a, a CLEAR postdoctoral fellow. So um, one of the programs that they've started is, uh, is producing data curation fellows. And again, they're mostly recruiting those from PhDs in um, the sciences and in engineering. And so we're, we're hiring somebody to uh, be a similar kind of data curation fellow and um, provide programming support for these sort of um, big data projects that are happening all over the campus here. So it's really kind of fascinating. And um, on the topic of institutional repositories, I thought we might get into the news um, and uh, talk about my home academic organization's recent release of its own repository. So the Modern Language Association uh, just yesterday, or maybe the day before, but uh, released MLA Core, um, the Commons Open Repository Exchange, which is the MLA's own repository for the scholarly works of its members. Um, so I'm really excited about that. Did anyone else read about that announcement? I think it's really cool. Me too. Yeah, me too. I heard it from uh, a friend of the, the show, uh, Kathleen Fitzpatrick, um, and I just was really excited by the idea that um, an organization, and you know, MLA has really been on the cutting edge of providing these kinds of services for um, sharing between their members and really making a good use of, the, of digital media to do that. And um, this seems like a nice next logical step. Um, you know, there are certainly a lot of MLA members that don't have institutional repositories on their campuses um, or may want to share something, you know, internally among the membership. And this gives them a platform to do that. So I'm particularly excited because I've noticed for years that, of course, the MLA annual conference is huge, just as the AHA annual conference is huge, and there hasn't for many years been a, a, an official proceedings from that conference just because, you know, it's so, uh, for one thing, there just are so many papers, it would be a, a mammoth task to kind of edit that thing. So, but I've always thought, you know, like, well, how hard could it be to set up kind of a repository where people could deposit their conference papers, you know, in um, a central place. And so I'm hoping that when we come around to, you know, January, people will actually begin doing that, depositing their slides and their, their written out papers in this repository. And then the great thing about it is uh, because this is, you know, architected according to, you know, the very high library standards, you know, all that material will have DOIs, you know, uh, persistent identifiers so that they'll be there. Um, citable. They're, the links won't break. You can cite them in your papers and put the URL and it, uh, it, uh, it won't break. Um, I'm also excited about this, as I say, as a new uh, manager of an institutional repository because I, I have heard that eventually, you know, the data from this is going to be sort of automatically harvestable by, by IRs like the one I am now in charge of. So I'm immediately wanting to just plug it in, plug your system into my system. Because that's the thing is that, like, People are depositing their publications in lots and lots of different places. People are uploading things to academia.edu. They're putting them on LinkedIn. You know, they're putting them on their own websites, and they're putting them in their own institutional repositories. So it's really important that these things kind of be able to exchange data. And um, I think that, that this is going to be able to do that really well. And it, it accepts a bunch of different kinds of uh, stuff, too. You can upload audio and video right. files and data sets and that kind of thing so oh is that right yeah, yeah. that's yeah, cool my, um, I, yeah i i sort of uh, there's a i have a couple of thoughts uh, about this i mean the the one was just that that what's i think interesting one of the things that's interesting about this um is that it puts it puts sort of non-traditional scholarship front and center in that it accepts if you look at the list of file types that it accepts. I mean, it accepts, you know, multiple kinds of audio formats and data formats and image formats and, um, you know, you know, PowerPoints and, uh, you know, video formats, other things. Um, yeah, you know, it, it, yeah, it, you know, it, it, it accepts, you know, zipped up, um, uh, directories of files. Uh, so it could accept a code base. Um, and that, and that I think, you know, having MLA, um, providing a place for people to do that, I think will encourage people to do that. Um, and it may broaden the kind of definition of, of what a scholarly product um, is and, and, and looks like. So that's, that's cool. Um, I also think it's sort of interesting um, that in an important way, it kind of, well, I, I, it's going to interoperate with as Amanda said, with institutional repositories at, at universities. Um, but 
I, I also think in some ways it competes with those uh, yeah. yeah those those repositories right. and it sort of shifts the the scholars identity in a way that like you know by uploading stuff to like I don't know if I would take the time to upload it both to MLA and to Yukon's repository right. and it sort of like presents me with a choice in a way that like am I am I a scholar of modern languages or am I a member of the University of Connecticut um, do you know what I mean like it's like it like by choosing one of these mm-hmm. um, places to to deposit your work, you're kind of making a statement about who you are. Um, and I think that's kind of an interesting thing. And I think, especially in a time where um, uh, academic labor is so tenuous and contingent and, and people, you know, like there are fewer and fewer tenured positions and people are moving around a lot more. Um, having a place that is, you know, that like I, you know, I can identify as I am a lit scholar and I'm going to upload my stuff to MLA rather than, you know, like I'm an adjunct at four different places and which one am I going to upload my stuff to? You know what I mean? Like, so I think, Mm -hmm. I I think there's a kind of interesting kind of labor identity, scholarly identity thing going on with this um, that I don't think is as, it's not as um, pointed with like the, the, you know, MLA Commons, where like, okay, well, I can I can be a member of lots of different social networks, but where I choose to place my research um, seems to me to be like a real, like, significant choice um, for scholars. You're absolutely right, Tom, and I have a lot of, I, so I think uh, having been, you know, listened to, you know, library chatter for a long time, even though I haven't, you know, been in libraries uh, for a few years, um, it, uh, you know, back at the beginning of the whole institutional repository movement, there was a sense that I got at any rate that libraries really did think that it was probably better for people to use, dis- create and use disciplinary repositories. Um, because, you know, one of the first early successes in that regard was archive, the physics one. Um, but the problem was, is that most of the disciplinary organizations weren't stepping up to create those at the time, you know, um, because even uh, at, you know, they had to be hosted, you know, by, you know, at institutions with institutional support for most of the time, you know, most of the time. So I felt like libraries understood much earlier than most the importance of this and were therefore willing to put resources into it. Um, But they always recognized, I thought, from the beginning Mm. that it would kind of be better for, um, you know, if, if scholarly associations could do it in a way that libraries would agree, you know, was was scholarly and you know would make the information persist and so on. But that's the other thing is there was sort of a knowledge gap that libraries sort of understood what was needed and in terms of how to do this, and and most scholarly associations didn't. I mean, um, it's interesting. Yeah. I'm just looking at the new University of North Carolina open access policy, and and that interestingly defers to disciplinary open access repositories as the first place. Yeah, faculty would go. I mean, so the announcement says, you know, UNT faculty who do not already have access to a disciplinary open access policy. So, mm-hmm. I mean, there's a that's an interesting gesture to it because my reaction was very much the same as Tom. Suddenly, actually, people have a choice, and and it's certainly some of the institutional um, repositories that 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 I've been involved with have carried with them a sense that this is an opportunity for you know the the institution to sort of you know in in some ways capture and centralize and and claim credit for the work of its faculty and and i do wonder just how some institutions will negotiate that choice on behalf of their faculty you know do do they will they see it as some kind of loss if that work goes to a disciplinary repository rather than to a library repository and rather therefore to that association or not and and i don't think anyone you know people are going to in most cases go to the trouble of uploading to multiple repositories and so you know I think, again, for hum- there's not a lot of humanities disciplines where this choice exists, but but it now right. obviously does for MLA members, and and I think it's going to be interesting to see how people um, make that decision. I, I know, as a practical matter, this question has come up already. You know, particularly with people who say, "Oh well, I've already got a bunch of stuff in my institutional repository. Can I redeposit it in MLA, or should I?" And um, so, right now, as a practical matter, MLA, you know, is saying. You know, sure, we have no problem with your uploading stuff 
to MLA core that exists elsewhere. The only, you know, quote unquote difficulty with that is that, you know, which one is the copy of record? Because these repositories really are meant to be, um, you know, official and scholarly. You know, it's, it's not just like sticking some file up on a file sharing, you know, up on Dropbox or a Google Doc or whatever. Um, they're really sort of carefully architected to be persistent and to be scholarly and to have good metadata. So um, that's the only kind of issue, you know, like you would, as a, as a practical matter, you know, you, if you don't care, you know, that you might have two copies in two different places, then you're certainly free to put your thing in both places. But as you, you know, as I think we all recognize, it's unlikely that most people will do that unless they're really already, um, you know, fervent about open access. But then, um, then I think the interesting question is to put Tom's two points together because most institutional repositories are not usually as broad in what they're interested in in taking on board as MLA is because I think that that's, you know, the notion of that as a repository and the breadth of what they'll take, not just at the, you know, at the level of the kinds of files but the kinds right. of broad academic activity that they're associating with those files is, is a much broader brief than the most institutional repositories have. Well, I'm not sure I'd say that. I mean, like, actually, the, you know, the institutional repository that, you know, I am now in charge of, we're in the process of building a, a you know, data hosting um add-on to it essentially and one that would host really really large data sets I mean the the you know large file the the file limit on MLA core is 100 megabytes which is plenty you know that's fine that's big but you know we're talking about you know mm. certainly gigabytes of data and probably even larger than that you know big big large data sets so uh, you know it, most institutional repositories do accept a bunch of different kinds of stuff you know they can, they'll tend to emphasize they they originally started out emphasizing scholarly literature, but they've run into various sort of roadblocks with that. So now gray literature is a big part of, uh, of most institutional repositories. But um, Right. I think that's probably it. It's probably more a matter of, of emphasis. And I feel like yeah. MLA core is, is there's a certain emphasis on non-traditional scholarship. Um, that maybe, maybe like that maybe isn't in some of the, some of the university or right. has, hasn't in the past. Well, it will be interesting to see, you know, what they get, you know, what people do to positive. It's a notorious problem with institutional repositories, including the one I'm in charge of, you know, just um, uh, getting the content into them, um, you know, because, and, you know, there's definitely been a movement away from relying on individual deposit and, um, work, you know, moving much more toward hiring staff who write scripts to harvest from various places that allow you to do that. So as usual, it's a, it's you know almost more of a, a social and policy issue than it is a technical <laughs> issue, you know, like well we could harvest everything from such and such a publisher or such and such a database except that they don't allow us to, you know. So um, so then you have to rely on individual deposit. But anyway, kudos to the MLA as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely. Uh, great yeah. effort and yes, may may cause some weird problems and does compete with certain other repository um, efforts in a way, but, you know, that's okay. Yeah, they're questions that we have to think about. Um, well, MLA is setting up repositories. Um, AHA, the American Historical Association, is a couple of steps back from that, something MLA has done several years ago um, and is circulating. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Keep our disciplinary <laughs> rivalries in check. Um, is circulating some guidelines for assessing digital scholarship. Mills, what do you make of the AHA getting into this game at last? Oh, well, you know. Um, so, okay. Here's what I'm going to say. What I'm going to say is I'm glad that the AHA is taking a role in this process because the fact is that history, when it comes to the evaluation of the work of people in, in their departments, historians are notoriously conservative. And there's a book, we know what that is, and there's an article in a scholarly journal that is peer-reviewed, and we know what that is. And everything else, well, it's not really a book, is it? And, and so forever, people doing digital work in the history field have been struggling with this because, in, in part, the leaders of the, the field, whether it's at the sort of top-ranked history departments or the American Historical Association, haven't really gone out in front and said, 
okay, well, we really value other forms of scholarship in the same way that, the, for instance, the MLA has been doing for quite a while. So, so it's good that the AHA is dipping its toe into this business of evaluation. The current draft that is circulating, I would say, is truly a toe dip. <laughs> it's, you know, it's nice, but it doesn't really say much. And um, other than, okay, history departments, um, there's all this digital work going on, and um, you need to be open to this. So, and and, and it's not all nothing. Um, so, for instance, here's there's a really really good point in the suggestions to departments, and that is that. Um, uh, departments need to consider how they will deal with work in a digital medium which exists in a process of continual revision and therefore never exists as a finished product. Okay, that's a really important point. And, um, and I think, so I'm good, glad that that's in there. Um, but, you know, it just, it, there's no, other than a few minor points like this, this draft document just doesn't take a strong position. It's not a leadership document. It's a, um, uh, can you tell I'm struggling with how to be nice about this? It's a, um, it's not a leadership document. It is a document that says digital humanities work by historians is complicated and we need to think about how we're going to evaluate it. Nowhere does it say, um, these are the criteria that departments should consider adopting. So there's no, there's not a position being taken here. And so I'm really, I will, I'll admit that, you know, this has been going on for a very long time, this thinking about it among historians. And I'm really disappointed and frustrated that, that the AHA didn't stick its neck out and take a strong position. Um, it's all sort of hedging language, may consider, should think about, you know, that kind of stuff. So, Well, what if they took the strong position that historians should only write articles and books and not do anything else? That would be a position. That would be a position. <laughs> and then you could argue about the position and say, okay, let's examine the intellectual merits of that argument. And... Um, so I, I feel uh, like it, Mills needs a um, an an anger translator. Here. I need Luther. <laughs> I need Paris Luther when I when when you know he spends too much time with Barack. So <laughs> I, I get what I won't be Mills's um, anger oh. translator, but I will be his partial translator. I mean, I I think you know I, I had like an initial positive reaction to like well a the fact that this is out there which is good like that it, it wasn't out before so the fact that we've got something out is is an advance obviously you would have loved it you know years ago um uh, i did my helped. first digital project in 2001 right 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 so i think there's a bunch of us uh probably listening and on currently on the podcast to could have used something like this during promotion tenure um already so it's you know it's 2015 it's a little late, but I think that's, you know, we can get past that criticism I thought was good about it. I think what Mills is trying to get at is, um, well, what was good is it, it's saying, you know, this is an information game. We need to be a little bit clearer about our expectations, and that's a healthy thing. We need to kind of, you know, department chair should talk to assistant professors early on about expectations and lay things out a little bit more clearly what I think Mills is trying to say is then the second part of that the other shoe doesn't really drop which is that the document does not commit to saying hey guess what this digital history stuff is actually valid um, historical scholarship or it doesn't take the other tack which says it's not um, scholarship it remains in this in this abstract realm of let's all just tell each other ahead of time what what the expectations are, and so it leaves aside, it sort of sets aside the larger question about whether the uh, discipline will come to accept this new form at all. And I suppose that that's just a, a kind of natural political attack to take, um, but um, we've certainly seen other statements that are a bit stronger that say more clearly, you know, this is acceptable work um you need to be a little clearer about laying it out um but you know it, it takes a more positive approach um but um you know i i 
I have to say, I mean, I, I'm just, I'm generally positive again about the fact that at least we've got something out there. It's a draft. Um, yes, I think yes. it could be, I think it could be strengthened. And so hopefully some of these comments yeah. will help to strengthen it. But I, the meat of it will only be frankly determined by this kind of political fighting, to be frank about it, between historians about what actually is valid scholarship in a digital age. And I, I just don't think this document is going to resolve that. Yeah, I, I wish they would. Oh, sorry, Nils. Yeah, I was just going to say, just to be clear, I am very happy that the AHA has has moved forward on this. And so the draft does give us the opportunity to talk about it. So I so kudos to them for taking this step, for sure. Yeah. I my My feeling on this is that they... And it doesn't seem that AHA is ready, actually, to issue guidelines for the professional evaluation of digital scholarship in history. Mm. This document seems to me better titled Statement on, on Professional Evaluation of Digital Scholarship in History. It's not – I think the problem – it's not actually guidelines. Like it, it – I don't know how useful this document will be in an actual tenure and promotion process like you can imagine an assistant professor going up for tenure with a digital portfolio and saying to the committee like use this document to evaluate me the the committee couldn't use this document to evaluate them i mean it gives them it, it gives some background to their practice but it doesn't it, it is not prescriptive in any way it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't actually assist that process. And if anything, it, it maybe confuses that process. Um, and so that's, I mean, so I wish that they would almost like, I feel like there's been pressure from, for instance, because MLA did it years ago for AHA to do this. But I almost think at this stage, if this is what it's going to be, that they would kind of take a step back and say, you know what? We haven't quite gotten there yet. Let's call this a statement. Let's put out a statement because I actually think the strongest section of this um, of this document is section number four, which describes the American Historical Association's role. And there, it actually does make some prescriptions for not for for departmental committees, but for the AHA itself, that the AHA should do things like gather historians' experience and digital scholarship into a working group that will be available to departments looking for outside experts, um, outside reviewers for candidates, uh, for that, will, that will advocate for digital scholarship in AHA today and perspectives on history that will work with the editors of the American Historical Review to get more reviews of digital scholarship into the journal. So like those kinds of things, like it's, it's a much better document for like guiding AHA towards a digital recognition of digital scholarship than it is for depart guiding departments towards a recognition of digital scholarship. So that's I think I, I, I think my recommendation to them would be like just don't call it guidelines. Don't like confuse don't confuse committees at this stage if you're not ready to make any kind of real prescription. Can I ask a dumb question? So if this were um, you know more like the MLA's guidelines, you know, to tenure and promotion committees. Um, how how effective would it be? Say that the AHA did come out with a really strong statement and a set of guidelines to tenure and promotion committees, saying yes, we think digital scholarship and digital history in all its form is a valid form of scholarship, and here is how you should evaluate that. How here's how you should reform your policies, history departments, in order to um, to evaluate that. How it, how effective would that be? It would be it would be hugely effective in this way. When someone is being hired, history departments all over the United States and around the world are trying to hire people with digital skills. Mm -hmm. So if you're that job candidate and they now say, Amanda, you're, you're our finalist. We want to hire you. you we love you. We, we want you to join our faculty and be with us for the rest of your career. You could pull those guidelines out and say in that negotiation, okay, can we talk about this? Mm -hmm. Because I do digital work, and I read the departmental tenure and promotion guidelines, and they don't talk about this. Mm -hmm. So before I take this job, I would like to know, department chair, dean, provost, whoever I'm talking to, how my work is going to be evaluated. Because here's my professional association's guidelines. So that's the first. The second is when you then come up for tenure and promotion, you can organize your presentation of your materials 
around not only your departmental guidelines, but the guidelines of your national professional association and say, look how I follow, look how my work reflects those guidelines. And, and that's especially important for the next level of evaluation, which is, you know, the college committee, which doesn't know anything about what you're doing because they're economists and literature scholars and religious studies scholars. You know, they focus on their own disciplines and they have to try to make sense of it. And if you could paperclip or staple or attach the digital file of your, of your national professional association standards and guidelines and say, look how my work fits with these guidelines of our professional association, that gives the economist, the religious scholar, the whoever it is, the cover and the comfort that they need to say, oh, okay, yeah, that's good. But, I mean, I, I'm just struck by the fact that that I think both both what kind of Tom said and, and what Mel said to begin with are kind of right, and in that way the document is, you know, kind of strikes me as highly politicised. It, it lacks the, those clear statements of... That, that Mills wanted, you know, the, the use of the word may all the way f- through the first half kind of drives me nuts. But if you then pair that with the sections that Tom's drawing attention to, they represent something more concrete that departments and people above departments can refer to. So even if the AHA is not sort of explicitly stepping forward and saying that the building of software is scholarship, if they're showcasing and pointing at examples that people involved in the process can refer to then in a kind of backward way they are providing the same support to that you know a level of support to that scholarship that you can deploy those examples um, and the reviews that are supposedly going to come in the AHR that already exist in the JAH you can deploy those to establish the credibility of the work that you're doing even as the AHA won't use the word should or anything like anything more stronger to lay out those criteria and you know I would love them to be leaders in this as well but but I do think that in 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 some nuts and bolts ways if they follow through on all of the things that they're charging themselves with doing they are going to provide a reference point for departments for scholars for people in in college and committees and so forth to point to that says you know the major professional association of historians does recognize this enough to showcase it as part of its work so so some of what you know some of what you're just articulating i think could be achieved even if the aha is not going to actually take a stronger leadership kind of position on on this question well i I got a i got a tenure and promotion dossier in my email this morning and i'm the the person being asked to evaluate the digital component of this candidate's work. And so I thought, okay, we're going to talk about this draft guidelines today. So I'll pull it back out and reread it and see what guidance I can get. You know, although this is just a draft, what sort of guidance I might be able to get from the thinking of the American Historical Association? And the answer is nothing. It's like what Dan said. There's nothing in here that's going to help me with that. So I'm going to continue to default to what I, Mills Kelly, think as opposed to what my professional association argues for. But I don't think it's going to be, it's not in these documents. It's in the things that the AHA is charging itself with creating in the aftermath of this document. That there'll be something that you could refer to. No, I don't think the document could be. And and that kind of drives me nuts. But I think Dot. You know Tom's point about the charge that the association's giving itself. If they follow through on that, there would be something that you could refer to in assessing a dossier. So, so I'm. I, I would also like to just highlight one moment because you know, as historians and and humanists, we're incredibly good at, at reading behind the text. Like, what's going on? Back, <laughs> what's going on back there? And and so, in in the part about. Um, responsibilities of departments there's such a wonderful moment that you can read behind digital scholarship should be evaluated in its native digital medium not printed out for inclusion in review materials (laughs) which of course means that that's happened and in fact Randy Bass at Georgetown uh, you know founder of the Crossroads Projects one of the real pioneers in digital humanities um, when Randy came up for tenure at Georgetown, he had to print out the Crossroads Project. It filled three, four-inch binders, he told us. <laughs> and so, now, of course, that was, oh, by the way, like 1999, I think. So, um, But the fact that the AHA feels called upon to still mention that in, oh, what is this? Oh, wait, it's 2015, that it still has to be mentioned shows that 
somebody on this committee formulating these knows a case of where somebody recently was asked to print out all their digital work so that it could be included in a binder. I, uh, I, I know one. I reviewed a case that was that way recently, two years ago. So there you go. So, so I'm going to make a commitment to all of our podcast listeners, and that is that I'm going to post on my blog, edward.org, all of my tenure and promotion documents that I have. Um, of course, I can't post the letters of my recommenders because those are behind some Chinese wall somewhere. Um, I guess if you really wanted to read them, you could file a FOIA request with the Commonwealth of Virginia, but I certainly can't, nor would I. But I'm going to post every single one of my tenure and promotion documents so that people can read how I tried to parse between my analog scholarship and my digital scholarship. And mine's further complicated because I also do the scholarship of teaching and learning. And so I have two, it's, you can see the whole trajectory from assistant professor to full professor. And I hope that that'll help somebody as they go along in this process. All right. Um, moving on, anniversaries. Um, we have the 10th anniversary of YouTube upon us. Um, and the very first YouTube video has been circulating online, um, Elephants and Zoos. Um, Tom, what do you make of 10 years of YouTube? Well, I, you know, it's interesting. I, I, YouTube is, a, I think, an interesting case of the, the thing that I found most interesting about YouTube is that YouTube was something that only became possible because of a change in the infrastructure of the internet that, you know, there had been in the nineties when, you know, we first all got on the web, um, a lot of attempts at creating video sharing services and doing online video. And, um, you know, and some people even like Mark Cuban got really rich, um, uh, you know, through IPOs of those services in the, in the late nineties, uh, none of them worked. Right. They all failed. And the fundamental reason why they all failed was because of the 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 speeds of connectivity that the there just wasn't enough bandwidth to make online video um, usable, useful um, and real. It was only sort of with the adoption of, you know, widespread adoption of first DSL and then starting then, you know, right around, you know, 2005 um, with, um, you know, high speed uh, connectivity, mainly through through cable operators um, that something like YouTube uh, could could take off. So it really was um, a, a, a product of its of its historical moment. And um, and I think that the 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 way that it that it was created in that and and this 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 form of short video which is kind of pervasive now you know this the short the short video um you know that has been you know some to some extent that you know youtube has 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 you know there's longer videos on youtube now than there were when when it first um uh, um emerged um but also there's this 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 you know sort of even shorter videos the animated gif and the and the vine and the and and uh instagram short video um that that was really determined by like the infrastructure available right it was you know there was there was enough bandwidth for video but not enough bandwidth for like streaming um you know the the star wars trilogy um and so we ended up with this kind of media form that is very much a product of its time and it sort of speaks to some of the things that are going on today where you know we have these big cable mergers and you know br broadband access is still really a problem and the, the speeds are actually in this country kind of horribly slow compared to some of some some other countries um and you start to think about like what are are we not seeing because the the broadband situation is sort of so messed up in this country like what are the what are, what is the next youtube what is the next service that's going to be that is a product of the increased um the increased bandwidth um what what would be possible with increased bandwidth that's not possible today um that just isn't being invented simply because of that infrastructure um that lack of infrastructure i mean it's i think it's impossible for us to kind of think about what that is um but but uh, but surely there is something and so I, I i think like youtube has a real lesson for 
for us, you know, for, for policymakers even that like, we really got to fix some of these broadband and bandwidth issues. Um, if we're going to see the kind of innovation that like, I think we all recognize YouTube was. Dan, you have YouTube thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I um, it was interesting. I was talking to Alexis Madrigal, who is um, formerly from the Atlantic and now is at Fusion. Um, and he had a piece actually on Fresh Air, um, the radio program on uh, NPR, uh, about this 10th anniversary. And he um, focused on... Uh, just what an incredible sort of catalog of everyday life and history uh, YouTube is. Um, that, you know, it's this immense record. There's some ridiculous number of hours uploaded, of video, hours of video uploaded every hour or every second to YouTube, and that he, um, you know, you can see pictures of or moving images of seagulls from everywhere in the, in the world that he shows to his kid who loves seagulls. Um, and, uh, you know, my comment, uh, which he read during that piece, um, which I, I think is important, is it's a, it is this incredible record, but of course, it's uh, very unlikely that we're actually going to be able to preserve it. And um, so it's this strange um, thing that we will have for some number of years and maybe some number of decades. But, uh, um, you know, Google, as I put it, is, is not in the forever business. It's not a library. Um, uh, a lot of these videos are encumbered by various rights. It's not like the Twitter archive where you can um, go out and archive it um, so easily. Um, obviously, video also takes up a lot more space and cost to preserve. And so um, I think it's sort of remarkable as a, a record. And I know Mills has used it in the classroom, actually, because it contains not only material from the past 10 years, but also, you know, historical video Um from the past century and uh, all that I'm afraid will be lost. Um, just kind of uh, sad to think about. Yeah. And you know, I, I was just, I was just checking my, my uh, cousin Matt down in, in Texas has a business that, that really lives on YouTube. And so I just, I just checked his latest stats are 8,200,021 subscribers, um, 3,795,300 no, sorry, seven three billion seven hundred ninety-five million three hundred four thousand six hundred sixty-five video views. Three billion. Amazing. That's since that's since July tenth, two thousand and six. So he was early in, you know, one of the early people, but um, three point eight billion video views. Just one business. It's really amazing. I mean, those are network size numbers. Um, I, I suspect and. Uh, you know, that's the other thing is it's for the first time you've been able, because of the technology that uh, Tom talked about, to connect um, people uh, to each other in this way through video um, is pretty remarkable. And uh, I know that, you know, Google has tried to light up some of this fiber, um, you know, starting in Austin and Kansas City, but now they've said that they're going to bring it to, I think, another 30 or 35 cities, the Google, Google Fiber project. And I think part of that is, in fact, to investigate just what Tom said, which is what is the kind of next application? If you have gigabit or if you have 10 gigabit or 100 gigabit connections, what are the new kinds of YouTube services that can take advantage of that? I haven't uh, really heard of anything that's really a breakout application from those places. I was in Kansas City last summer and um, heard a lot about what was going on there. I know there are a lot of startups there. Um, but it is it is curious um, um, I'm curious to see what, what happens with that. Yeah, the future of YouTube. Um, I guess the other the other YouTube story that I did see recently was the one that suggested, and I'm going to get this wrong, was it Berkeley or Stanford were pulling their open lectures off YouTube in order to use them on MOOCs. Um, and, and I, you know, there is some sense that the businesses of YouTube and the extensions of YouTube, I think, are... Um, are, are leading people in other directions and kind of off the platform. I noticed in some of those 10th anniversary stories, you know, the, the most viewed videos are increasingly, you know, professional music video productions, which is, you know, YouTube is the new MTV, which I think is a kind of interesting alongside all of those parts of everyday life. It's become 
a, a major business platform um, yeah. in various kinds of ways. And I have to claim to be, I, I, I dread to say, maybe too old to understand. Unnamed members of my family watch um, this slightly scary show called Dance Mums, which I struggle to understand partly because it's it's at this kind of media crossover panel. It's a reality show on which the girls are becoming YouTube stars, working with professional producers of YouTube materials and having their celebrity measured by the amount of views and crossing back over into the reality television kind of view. So the, the cross-platform kinds of things that YouTube is part of, I think, are, 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 are also, you know, an interesting guide to possible directions it might go if if the hardware makes it possible. All right, that is a extended amount of our time. We've already said goodbye to Amanda, who's gone off to to the call of her new jobs, and it's probably time for the rest of us to head off to the rest of our afternoons. So thank you again to Mills, Tom. Dan and Amanda um, for joining us and coming together in the aftermaths of Dan's brush with the president. Um, we are I'll, I'll try to get him on uh, podcast 115. That's yeah, right. Yeah, Dan, I was just, I, I noticed in one of the photographs <laughs> of you with Obama, it appeared that you were wearing your new Apple Watch. Is that true? I, uh, yes, uh, that's the only way you can get in the White House now. You have to have an Apple Watch. Um, buzz yourself in. That's right. The president is the first adopter. Um, so, Anyway, in the in the in the shadows of Christmas, we are heading off into the summer, so you may not hear another digital campus broadcast for a while as the summer calls out to the rest of us. So, um, best wishes to all of my fellow podcasters. Um, see everybody again soon. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Fear itself. Please visit us online at digitalcampus.tv, where you can join in the discussion and let us know about stories and issues you would like us to cover on future episodes. Mike O'Malley wrote our theme music. Ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Thank you.